nothing ever happens. This October podcast is a bit self-serving. I've entitled it, What Would We Be Doing If We Weren't Doing This? A Ferrayan Focus Group on a Democratic Departmental Journey. Our Religious Studies Department has been on a 30-plus year journey into what it would be like to live into Paulo Freire's vision for democratic education. How can liberatory pedagogies inform our work at the department level? In what ways can we model our commitment to an education for freedom as opposed to an education for domestication? How do we extend what we're learning in our classrooms to our practices at a more systemic departmental level? What would a truly democratic, liberatory department of religious studies look like? There is important work being done by our students in a student leadership group, Safe Agnes Scott Students, with the acronym SAS. Leaders in this group partner with faculty in around 10 disciplines to offer syllabus workshops and midterm evaluations, as well as assistance around difficult dialogues. There are more expansive models of student partnerships at Bryn Mawr and Carleton and other colleges. All of these are supported by their institutions and usually are housed in a center for teaching and learning that offers student fellowships and pedagogical training. These models of engage students as partners in teaching and learning, which is the title of an Allison Cook Sather et al. book and several articles, include students participating in curriculum design as we practice in our department. A list of basic resources is on the resource page of this podcast website. We want to get a conversation started about why the Freirean vision is not being implemented by departments in their work with students. The obvious answers include an embedded hierarchy, the blame game on student involvement, lack of faculty commitment, and perceived threat to faculty authority and power. Students and I have presented at several national conferences hoping to engage more critical dialogue on this topic. What we are doing is at once radical and not radical enough. So we evolve and assess and this conversation with religious studies and religion and social justice alumni and majors is representative of our ongoing conversations. We hope you will listen to the insights of these students and engage us in further conversation. Participants in the conversation include Lucia Holsether, Judith Jones, Emma Fisher, Avalon Bonley, and Lauren Bodenlos. Thanks for listening. Hi, um, I'm Judith Jones, class of 2016. I was a women's studies and religion and social justice double major, um, ex-law school student, current nanny. Solid. I'm Lucia Holsether. I'm a class of 2011, double major in religious studies and sociology anthropology. I went to Divinity School at Harvard after I graduated from Agnes Scott, and I'm currently a fifth-year PhD student at Yale in um, the American Religious History Program. My name is Emma Fisher. I am a senior. I will be graduating in December, um, and I'm a religion and social justice major. My name is Avalon Bonley. I will be graduating in May. I'm a senior. 
and I'm double majoring in history and religion and social justice and looking for gap year opportunities. Um, my name's Lauren Bogmus. I'm a junior uh, religious studies and women's studies double major. Awesome. All right, you have before you uh, the vision statement of the Department of Religious Studies that was um, started in the, in the mid-1990s as a way to come to some agreement about the journey we're taking together into democratic uh, departmental structure and, and process. So if I could get you to talk a little bit, alumni, about your experience of the vision statement, uh, why you kept it going for this new group that's here, and why the new group, we just revised it again, um, why we think this is important, and what, what does it mean for us to have this and to seek to, to live into it? One of the things that really stood out to me when I came to Agnes Scott and saw the vision statement in religious studies was the focus on mentoring, women mentoring, and also co-mentoring. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like a place and was a place in my experience where mentoring wasn't just happening from the top, from the faculty to the students, but the students mentored each other. Students could mentor faculty. There were all kinds of directions in which learning and teaching and growing were happening. And I think that that created a sort of um, a kind of a really dense kind of connected tissue in the department um, where people were bound together and able to pursue their interests and their goals and their intellectual projects in a number of ways. And because everyone was learning from everybody else and committed to the growth of everybody else, and because we had this document to reference as a thing that was calling us into a sort of better form of ourselves, it meant that the possibilities for taking risks together and the possibilities for what kinds of work, um, either within college or post-college, like that there was, there was just a wider range of imaginative possibility around that and, and a sort of broader expanse of what, what could be valued as a contribution. Um, and I really appreciated that because for me it, it, made, it made education a place that didn't, didn't involve the same kinds of rigid hierarchies that it might in another, in another kind of classroom or another kind of university or another kind of department. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the vision statement was, began to be kind of a catalyst for that. Definitely. I definitely agree. I think, especially thinking about hierarchy and just a completely different power dynamic in religious studies. And I mean, we both double majored. Um, not that women's studies doesn't have that breakdown, but they didn't, not to no fault of their own, just of not having full time faculty to do that kind of mentoring and like a strong base of women's studies students to do that kind of co mentoring. There wasn't that, even despite like a more broken down or egalitarian power anyway. Um, and I think just having a vision statement still to this day is just accountability. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I mean, you can always go back to this if there is trouble between student and student-student or, you know, student-professor. I think, like, say, you mentioned going beyond Agnes Scott, I think having this kind of uh, vision statement that is truly a vision and not reality, but the hope of, of reality, I think does prepare you for a situation that is completely opposite and 
knowing that your worth isn't still based off of what you can produce in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. I shopped around in a lot of different departments my first year trying to figure out where I wanted to land. And I think a big part of what drew me to this major was the department community. Mm -hmm. I thought this department would have like a tighter knit environment and more like congeniality even between like professors you'll never have a class with than any oh, yeah. department I've seen. Yeah, I remember like my, my whole first year, like towards the end of my first year, I had figured out that I wanted to be like a religious studies kid, but I was intimidated. I was like so terrified of like going to an apartment meeting because I was like, what the heck? Like I've never heard of this, da 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 da. And then I went to my first apartment meeting and like we talked about the vision statement and I was like, oh, like this is what this community is. And like watching that, like that, the way that people interacted and, and hearing about like the communal values was really, really like essential in me like losing that fear and becoming part of the department. And then like my dad is a professor at a, or was, he's retired now, was a professor at a huge state school. And when I told him that not only was I going to department meetings, but I was gonna lead a department meeting, he was like, what? <laughs> it was completely unheard of, you know? But this, you know, it's, it's something cool. And I, I really like, I absolutely agree. I think the vision statement is 110% accountability. And it's, like, we're never gonna be perfect, and we're never gonna be, like, succeeding at all these things simultaneously, but it's a very clear definition of, of who we want to be and how we want to run things. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Uh, listening to all of you guys, two things come to mind. First, when I came to Agnes as a first year, um, did you guys have safe Agnes Scott? Not safe. I'll get to that later. But uh, Scotty sibling. Yeah, I had a Scotty sibling. Yeah, so Emma was actually my Scotty sibling. Yes. And just sort of like brought me into the department oh. and welcomed me so fully um, and just showed me how open this department is and how kind and nurturing it can be to everyone. And then um, also SAS. I don't think that our vision statement would be anything if we didn't have SAS. Um, what was SAS like? What here? A hodgepodge, honestly. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, you remember. I mean, it was difficult to get people to do it or people to take it seriously. Um, and that wasn't that long ago. I don't know if it's improved, but. Yes. Okay, yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Significantly. Do you want to yeah. say the numbers? How yeah. many departments, how many classes, how many reps? Say what it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's also important. Sure. Yeah, I just sort of jumped into SAS. Um, so SAS, Safe Agnes Got Students, is an on-campus organization that started 20-ish years ago um, in the Religious Studies Department because there was a faculty member who was from lack 25 years ago. 25 15. years ago. 15. 15. 15 years. It's very clear we are not the math department. It's a cool Anyway, um, 15 years ago, because there was a professor who was um, aggressive, for lack of a better word, is that fair? Um, and so SAS started as a way to sort of get students to have more of a voice in the classroom and sort of level the playing field between professors and students. Um, so how it works is a student will go into the class um, at the beginning of the year to sort of go over the syllabus and set a standard for the classroom and allow students to ask questions or express their concerns and then they go in again at midterms to do a midterm evaluation of the professor um, in the form of a class discussion. Is that clear to everyone? Yeah. Cool. So um, that's really grew a lot this year. It sort of died out and now we are 
back and breathing. Um, we're in, what is it, seven departments? Or it was like nine. Nine departments working in like almost 20 classes. Yeah. Um, 13 reps. What? Yeah, yeah. So, that's so great. Yeah, we are even uh, in the we are in some STEM classes. We're in one so. STEM class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What class? Yes. We're in physics. Um, physics. Yes, yeah. Dr. Ackerman. And then first year classes. We're okay. in some first year classes. That's yeah. good. Yes. Yeah. Women. Uh, women studies one hundred. What a one. Um, women studies one hundred. A global class and a leadership. about the power dynamics because there's definitely a power imbalance. Yeah. I mean to to level the playing field would be ideal. But impossible. But I, impossible, yeah. I write letters, I give grades as a professor and there's a certain system here, institutional structure that we hit against. Um, so talk about that power and how having um, not just the vision statement as a as a marker for us and a conversation partner, but also SAS. Um, what that's doing to help us realize that mutual accountability and the existence of this power imbalance. Yeah, I think one of so when I was here um, between 2007 and 2011, when I came into the department, I had a similar experience to all of you that. Students who were further along in the program brought me in and really mentored me. And SAS was, SAS at that point was only in religious studies. And, but it was in all of the religious studies classes. There were a couple of reps for every class. It was a really vibrant organization. And then dramatizing what SAS knew and SAS um, said in all of its documents, which is that we're trying to level the playing field, but the reason that, but it's an ongoing effort, kind of like the vision statement, it's something that we're, we're constantly having to live up to. It's always the professor's choice because they still have the um, institutionally sort of awarded sovereignty over their own classroom. It's their choice whether or not they're gonna let SAS into the classroom or agree to, um, to engage with SAS or with their students. And so there was a year when, um, when folks were on leave and we had all of a sudden that we had very very little support for SAS in the department and luckily um, there was a core group of students who knew what it was like to have SAS and there were students even outside of religious studies who would run into problems in classes that had suddenly closed down the SAS's access to the class who would email SAS reps anyway and say hey 
can we can we talk to you about this thing that's happening? We want to problem solve together, even if you don't have a sanctioned position. And I think that might have been, I don't know if that was, I think SAS goes through waves of sometimes there will be a lot of excitement and participation and sometimes it will dip. But sometimes those waves um, map onto when faculty who tend to be really excited about SAS as a tool for educating themselves, educating their students um, about what does it mean to be in college? What does it mean to read a syllabus? What does it mean to participate? When those faculty are gone, SAS has a hard time um, and it's an uphill battle because the power dynamics still exist and it's, a, it's an attempt to correct, but it's not, um, it doesn't change the fundamental power structure that we, um, that we live in unless there's an ongoing commitment that we keep returning to every every time we're in a classroom. Um, so that's and that's what I would say about the power dynamic connected to the longevity of the organization. I think with SAS, it sort of kicks it off on the first week to like really make it clear that the professor is not infallible. Mm -hmm. Like as you go through the syllabus, which is like uh, practically like a holy text when you like first get to college, mm -hmm. they like it's unquestionable. It's unquestionable, and then SAS comes in and you realize like oh. <laughs> There, there are mistakes in here, there are things that don't make sense. There are missing like, things. Yeah. And typos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's stuff that like if you didn't have someone like sit you down and say like, hey, we need to look at this as a group, you probably would have never noticed. Or I would never without like mm -hmm. as I think my first SAS experience was like as a sophomore, like I had never really questioned a syllabus before. I was just like, all right, this is a syllabus, these are the rules, this is how it is. And then I had asked Rob, who was like, all right, we're gonna look at this and like think critically about it. What do you think? And I was like, what do you mean what do I think? Like, I don't get to think about this. Like, it's just, this is just how it is. And they were like, mm, no, you get to like, let's like, let's talk about it. And it was, it was really, like the power dynamic is absolutely still there, but it's, we're putting chinks in the armor. You know, we're, we're breaking down the little, you can see that it's not solid. You can see that there are, are holes in it, that it's becoming translucent, you know, and obviously like it's still there, you know, because they're like professors at the end of the day, at, like like you said, have the choice to allow SAS in the classroom or not. They have this institutional back power. But I think for me, even the idea that students also have power and can affect change in a small way, even if you just like fix a typo or change something on the list, like I feel like that's really important. I think it definitely, going back to students having power, I mean, it definitely is a clear, even if the power balance never changes and people don't let SAS in, just other students and other departments knowing that this is my education, like, I deserve respect and I deserve dignity in the classroom. You can't speak for me, how, you know, whatever way. Like, I can challenge your syllabus, I can challenge my grades, you know. Yes. I mean, it is my education in the end of the day, um, and I should have. I should know that I am empowered to push back when I know people are being treated right in this room. Mm -hmm. I think it can also kind of have like a ripple effect. Like you, if you, like if you are, if you've had an experience with SAS and you're, you're maybe not in a class that doesn't have a SAS rep, like, like you said, you know what it's like. And then if someone, you know, if someone's like, well, Judith can, if Judith can, can do that and challenge, challenge the existing thing, like why can't I do it? You know, because she's right, you know, and then it's like, work together and it's, yeah, it's a good time.
Here's a question for you all that I'm curious. So there was a, another wonderful um, religious studies alum named Amy Laurent, and we we had we and some of you all may have done this presented to different audiences about uh, academic audiences of professors. What is SAS? Whether at Agnes Scott or elsewhere at, at a conference, and one of the things, one of the sort of knee-jerk reactions that we would get, we got we got many knee-jerk reactions, but one of them was well, there's this drift in education towards treating students like consumers, and the students, students are just so entitled, and they, they just want to boss professors around, and this isn't a Walmart where you just go to the store and pick out what you want on the shelves, and SAS seems to be creating that dynamic. What do you say to those people? I hear you. Um, I think in, in some educational circles there has absolutely, like, Going back to my dad, like the way that my dad talks about the shifts in his school, you know, which is a state school with like 25 to 30,000 undergrads. The way that his experience has changed is that they are treating students more like a consumer. What I would say, and like this is a little weird, it's, it's less consumer, more like cooperative. We all, so like I just, I don't want to just get a product and be like, all right, you have to give this to me the way that I want. It's not Burger King. I don't, you know, I'm not going to get it my way. It's like, this is, this is a place where we are all invested. And, you know, there's no like king, king of, of like the classroom or whatever. It's like, we're all here together, you know, and it's. Just, just because you say something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Like, I can say, oh, I don't agree with this policy. That doesn't mean it's going to change. But I'm allowed to have a voice, and we're allowed to work together. Like, it's, it's much, I think it's much less about, like, we want a thing. It's about an experience. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the focus of it is really having everybody have a stake in, in what's going on in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? I've never had anyone ask that specific question or raise that issue, but most professors I've talked to about SAS have had some problems with it. Um, the most common one I hear is with the specific language that we're trying to create a democratic classroom space, um, which, as we've discussed, isn't possible, really, because um, there always will be, whether we like it or not, that power imbalance. We can reach for it and aspire to be something close to it, um, so, um, for, I've had, I don't know, four professors, probably, say something along those lines, and um, I think that's reasonable, so, then mm -hmm. we adjust the language um, to just trying to make a more approachable space, instead of democratic space, because I think that still captures the essence of what SAS is. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think, I mean, like you said, my mother teaches as a professor as well, and I mean, yes, technically we like we are consumers. Like this is a capitalist model of yeah. how teaching. Should we're paying for some, but we're again, we're we're not like just supposed to regurgitate things and spit them back. Like that's not the point of liberal arts. Um, but then, I still feel like I would say yes. Like technically, we are consumers because this is the way university models work these days. But then, to your point, then to counter that, but I'd also say I, I don't think we're consumers because these aren't skills that are only bound in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You should know that you have the power to negotiate with your boss, to negotiate in your grad program, 
Like you can apply this to anywhere you go. And that's probably scary for some people to know that they're empowered and they're going to have democratic space and not accept the syllabus and not accept this is my job agreement and not accept this is just this is my grad program. Just to know that anywhere they go, they could push back. I think is maybe scary for people. Yeah, that uh, you're yeah. creating students that are consciously aware and demanding and have agency. And have agency. The biggest concern I've had talking with professors is like if only a couple students are engaged, then the direction of the class yeah. sort of de facto goes with the students who are engaged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you guys think about that issue? That's a great question. I, when I've gotten that concern, I ask the professor back. Why, why are only a couple of students engaged in your classroom? Um, and what can we collectively do to, um, to increase or change the kinds of engagement? What kind of engagement is occurring with that, that might not be legible or visible to you? Um, perhaps students are engaged. Perhaps they're leaving the classroom and having side conversations about how pissed off by, uh, they are about the homophobic person sitting behind them. Like, yeah. perhaps, the, it's, I think it's really difficult to spend however many hours a week in a classroom without being engaged in some way. So everything mm -hmm. is engagement. So then how do you shift the engagement? And I think that one way to do that is to invite people into a conversation about what are the grounds um, where, how, one of the questions that um, I really liked to ask um, students on midterm evaluations when I was a SAS rep and now that I ask to my own students that I teach in classes at Yale is um, describe the learning environment of this course. Not what's working, what's not working, but just describe it. Give me some examples of what fits with your description and that way the professor and the students can know what's working and what's not working and why. Um, so if they're engaged, why are they engaged? Is it because the professor is a really charismatic person entertaining them? That's not great engagement in a classroom. If they're disengaged, are they disengaged because they're refusing a premise that needs to be brought to light in a discussion with a SAS rep? Disengagement could be a really good and principled thing in some settings, and engagement could be a really ugly thing in some settings. So that's, I, I, I deconstruct the question and put it back on the the, the, the naysayer. I think that's, I think that's a solid, that's a great response. I like the nuance of talking about engagement. Because yeah. I, I do think that engagement in this, like, in this context has a really specific like, positive connotation, and I hadn't considered, like, just because you're engaged doesn't mean you're learning, you know? Mm -hmm. And just because you're not engaged, you know, like that has power to it also that I, you know, that when you said that I was like, oh, I have a friend who's not engaging with the reading because they're all dead white men. And it's a, it's an African studies class. And she's like, why, what, what's the, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think, it's, I think it's an African studies class. It's, I think it's race and gender or something. And she was like, I, <laughs> she's like, why are we reading them? Like, no. And I'm like, yeah, that, like that has power. Don't, I'm not like 100% sure on that, but she's not engaging with them for a solid reason. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't know what class it is, but it's because they're all dead white men. And she's like, this is dumb. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. And that has power to it, absolutely. Well, uh, the future of SAS, we're wanting to connect or house it in the Center for Teaching and Learning. Yes. And perhaps extend the model to something like Carleton College has with their 
um, student observer fellows where they, like a Center for Writing and Speaking tutor, are assigned, apply to, and are assigned to classes for the entire semester as a sounding board and a participant and a conversation partner with faculty about pedagogical models yeah. and what's happening in the classroom. You want to yeah. speak more to that, Lauren? Yeah, so I had a meeting with um, Dr. Beth Hackett in the Women's Studies Department about mm -hmm. SAS a couple weeks ago, and she brought up Carleton College's amazing model that they've been doing for decades. Um, it would be so great to have SAS mm -hmm. grow um, to this new level and be more of a, I don't know, pillar in the Agnes learning environment. Is there like, do you know if there's an incentive for students to become an observer? They might look around it's paid. The they get paid. It's paid. Well, yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> pros and cons with being institutionalized, right? Yeah. Um, but we finally found, uh, you know, sort of an open window to help us see the future of yeah. where this could go. On and and faculty perhaps could sign up for different parts of it. Maybe the model of um, syllabus workshop and midterm evaluations or you know, having someone in the class, which I think would be fabulous, mm -hmm. that you're uh, reading pedagogical theory with and you know, I think, engaging. I think we can make it, I'm like, I don't know how popular this idea is going to be, but I think it, Summit offers a great opportunity for this because it's a leadership thing. and you could make it like an option for the leadership practice. Which like, you know, like, listen, like institutionalization is the problems, but also like, if we want to be able to, to have, you know, funding, if we want, you know, like, maybe, I don't know. I, I also, I was thinking about, but I had not, had not learned about the Carleton model, which I think is fabulous. Um, and I think we learned from Carleton, Carleton could also learn from Agnes Scott. I think that solo, um, Having the professor out of the classroom during the syllabus review, which I don't know yeah. if we've said entirely explicitly in this conversation yet, would kick the professor out of their room to do the to this to do the midterm eval, the syllabus review. Um, I think is really important. Um, and the and then the observe the observation adds another dynamic. Um, I think about the um, center for writing and speaking at Agnes Scott. I was a writing tutor, and all my three old writing tutors, speaking tutors. I socialized on those six. Yeah, in the writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the one thing that I think is really wonderful about the center for writing and speaking, at least when I was there, was that there's institutional support. It has institutional money. Um, people are paid for the labor they do um, to give feedback to their peers. Um, and Dr. Cousins is clear that Dr. Cousins is the director of the center, or was at least when I was yes. there, it continues to be. The director of the Center of Writing and Speaking is very clear that this is a student space. And so professors are not walking through the writing center because that would be a weird power dynamic. And so there's a meeting of writing tutors reading Writing Center Theory every week, um, talking about it, coming up with our own research projects about Writing Center Theory and, and practice. Um, but in the writing center itself, faculty are not intervening in tutoring sessions. They're not even in the room. And so I can imagine, I think that that, this sort of, and I think writing centers have a whole long history of being spaces for kind of radicalism and, and, and sort of and, um, uh, edgy kinds of pedagogy. And I feel like a similar institutionalization doesn't have to be incorporation or um, co-optation in every single Way mm -hmm. um, I can imagine a similar kind of model working for the um, for teaching 
teaching position like this. Well, could we get back to our departmental journey uh, and the road we're making by walking it? That is, uh, as far as we know, other departments, we haven't found one that is doing quite this kind of thing where um, we share chairing meetings, uh, we rotate students and faculty. Uh, students, I think, do a better job <laughs> than, than are more prepared than faculty. Um, you know, and, and having conversations about the curricular decisions we make, mm -hmm. uh, honor society, are we going to be a part of that, events that we have. Um, but when I mention this to other faculty who are also, you know, uh, deeply educated in the, you know, the pedagogical theory of Paulo Freire and others, there's a shock and a horror of, oh, well, how is that their responsibility? Or how can students make decisions about that? And I mean, just they can't get their heads around um, the model that we are doing. So why are we doing it? And what are we doing doing it? That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, why not just be normal? What higher education does? I think well, first of all, normal's overrated. Like, forget, forget normal. Like, no. But I feel so much more engaged and active in my department because than my peers, whose whose departments don't do this, because I feel like I have a stake in it. You know, like I know that my voice is heard and I know that I'm listened to. And of course, I'm I'm not always going to get my way because you know it's not the world of Emma Fisher. But you know, it's thanks. <laughs> but like. I feel invested and I feel really part of a community and I know that when we do these things we do them together for everybody. It's not just professors saying, oh this is what you're going to learn. Like we had at our last department meeting we voted on what Kristen Sessions was going to teach and it was because she was like, I would love to teach either of these things, what do you think the students want? You know, and we were like, wow, this, this class on um, death and dying. There's, there's a huge like audience for that. And, and I think it's a perspective that otherwise isn't heard. And I think it's a perspective that's really important. And I think it gives people to care. It really does. And students always have opinions on the decisions department. Oh, always. And like, the decisions virtually always affect students. And so like, why not? Like, they're the people that are going to, like, at least for the immediate future, likely be most directly affected by the policy changes. I think you both are totally right. Um, also, what Judith said earlier was, um, I think, great as well. Can you repeat it? Yeah. My memory is horrible. Yeah. Um, about <laughs> how um, our department sort of gives us the opportunity to have, like, a real world lesson yeah. on how to be empowered as we move through our lives. Because mm -hmm. there's always the critique that, oh, this isn't the real world, Agnes isn't the real world. I'm like, no, this is. Like, these are, like, you need to be able to understand, you need to be able to run a meeting. You need to be able to advocate for yourself. You need to be able to understand the power dynamics in a room and work with other people. And, yeah. <laughs> I think 
think we could ask, what, how did it become normal that students weren't involved in their own education? Perhaps, um, yeah. Like, what are people afraid of? Do they, like, do they think we're gonna like have a, like, we might have a riot, but like, do they think that we're gonna like flip tables and like, no, like we want the best education, that's, we want the best education possible. And I know that the teachers, the professors, want to provide the best education. Like, we're, our goals are the same. Why would we not work together? I mean, this is mm -hmm. a place to learn. And being able to chair a department, being able to even be invited, is just a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's not some, I mean, if it's radical, but, but I mean, down to it, you are learning that skill. Um, like you said, like, how would you know how to run a meeting? How would you know how to, I mean, coordinate all that without Keep someone yeah. mentoring you? And I think it goes back to the vision statement and there's another aspect of mentorship and seeing another student do them in the co-mentoring there. Um, like, yeah. Oh, I didn't think I could run a meeting until I saw Rachel Floyd do it. And then I was like, oh, huh. Me with you. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> I was like, oh, this can be done. Okay. I also think that, and we, we, and we always say this, it's this sort of, we're talking about how much students can learn in, in these leadership opportunities that SAS um, mm -hmm. provides and that the department, um, the democratic department model tries to enact. And I, I also think, and I say this from having been in SAS and having been in the Scots Religious Studies Department, now teaching my own classes at Yale, um, faculty learn a lot too from having students in leadership role, not even just leader, leadership role sounds tokenizing, like in, in collaborative partnership with creating the departmental and classroom space. And so how do, how do faculty know what students, what kinds of classes and interests and questions and problems um, they can best address in their classes? And that could be interesting. Well, like sharing, sharing in leadership and um, I think Tina's right when uh, when she says that students often do a, a better job running <laughs> department meetings than than people whose job it is to run the department meetings because there's a kind of intuitive there's a on the ground pulse there's a sense that we're becoming leaders we're going to do this really well and we are we're just as invested as anyone else around this table um, and are and are becoming the thing that that. Uh, we're, we're, we're becoming the thing that we're doing, just like as we continue, as we continue to move through it together. And you can't, you can't claim that if, if more than half of the department population is not in the room. Yeah. I don't really see it. Ugh, English. I also really, really feel that it goes back to engagement. Like mm -hmm. when people feel heard, they're going to be more engaged. And I, I can't imagine any professor who doesn't want to engage students. I, I know that students want to be engaged in the classroom, and this is this is the way to do. It. Like you know, when we talk about research, like questions, I'm like, well, what is someone like? What do so and so think about this? One? Have you asked them? You know, like what do students want from the board? Well, have, have you asked them? You know, what classes should we offer? Well, let's let's ask. You know, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I really, I really, really think it creates engagement. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also really important that it's like in a broad open environment like our department meetings are like they're often in Irvine and sent out in emails mm -hmm. because like there are always going to be like some people who like find a role of being engaged themselves who say like hey Tina I really love to see a class on this and then we can see if we can get some balls rolling but if it's an open conversation mm -hmm. like it lets people who wouldn't have ever thought to knock on Tina's door to see if they can make some change happen and it generates ideas Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
because if, if I have an idea and I just talked to Tina, it's only Tina and I that were talking about it. But if you if you bring up the department meeting, there's like a, like ten of us, and we're all like, duh, 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 you know, and it's it makes the idea better than it could have been if only two people were working on it. Sharing is caring. Well, when current students, when you come back from your 10-year reunion, what would you like to see the department look like? I'd like it to be bigger. I'd like, I'd like, I'd like it to be bigger. I'd like more students to be involved. I would like there to be more Jewish classes, Jewish studies classes. Um, Agnes has a teeny tiny Jewish population, but we're still here. And it's not just us who want to take the classes. And I'd like there to be a fellowship. I'd like there to be some sort of like legit depart not like you know what I mean. so, like some sort of department run or authorized whatever leadership thing for a junior or a senior to have an idea, have a project and run with it with with support. Mm -hmm. I like that fellowship idea. I think it's not an original idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a fellowship in religion and social justice. Yeah, yeah. what a great title, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I could sort of like be like a designated person that could mm -hmm. help lead student movements on campus. Mm -hmm. Like if it, you had someone who was like their fellowship position to like help work on the living wage, that would there would be like so much more that we could absolutely done than people who are drowning in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lead student mm -hmm. groups, work on research projects, you know, yeah. if there's a question about, like, a his the history of something at Agnes Scott, they could do that, you know, or mm -hmm. ethnographic research, or, mm -hmm. you know, just a passion project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not to be a terrible person, what's the difference between that vision and a 410? They're paid. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're paid. That's oh. it. Yeah. 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 So, what do you want to say to each other? As you know, only a few years separate you, really. Um, so, what what do you say to each other? Thank you for making the department what it is. Yeah. Thank you. You guys are great. Thanks for. It's so cool to see how the their just their vibes that continue across the generations of students that. I could see anyone from the years above me coming in and being totally at home in this conversation and continuing to create this vision over the years. It's really, it's really moving and cool. That's really nice to hear. Yes, seriously. It's also just because I saw y'all as first years, seeing y'all now. Nice to see who y'all become. I'm like. Thank you for unconsciously being like role models. Like, even in your, even on your bad days, like legit, like seeing people, like seeing people succeed and then seeing people struggle, that you have a relationship with is like, wow. Okay. Even someone as amazing as Judith has bad days. You know, like it's it's really cool because as like a baby firsty, like I or like as a sophomore or whatever, I got to see what y'all were doing and be like, whoa. Someday I can present at Seek's work, you know, and all sorts of cool stuff like that. And I just, I just, I feel like our department is really, it's like, this is so cheesy and I'm just going to apologize for this, but it's, it's, we're like a family, you know, and I didn't realize how like not 
typical that was until I was talking to my friends. I was like, yeah, I have to party meetings. We go to Tina's house every year. You know, we have like lasagna and roasted seniors. And they were like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was like, what are you, you know, like you're not, you don't get it like adopted by upperclassmen and they don't show you their, like, no, it's. Don't forget pearls. Oh, and pearls! pearls. Yes. And I'm not wearing them. Oh, my. You put them on your resume? <laughs> yes. We, at the last department meeting, we made, um, <laughs> we made a, we made a thing. You know. Yeah, the Pearl Award for mm. Excellence in Religious Studies. Yeah. Mm, I put that on my resume. Yes. <laughs> <Jobs> this year. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, so we're at time, so last words. Yeah. Yeah, thank, thank you, you all for being here. This is this is such a help for assessment and for posterity and you know to get the story um, on film. Yale is next. Yeah. <laughs> and we have Flat Frere. Yeah. Um, Flat Agnes uh, is something that um, Agnes Scott alumna and um, Students take on journeys. Take on their next adventure, yeah. whether it's yes. Mount Kilimanjaro or your yeah. local Oh, actually, it has words on that. Oh, thank you. And we have Santa invented uh, Flat Frere since um, it is the 50th anniversary of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Oh. And uh, our department model is based on um, Frerean uh, pedagogical theory. It's like, well, why we have a democratic working on democratic classrooms, why not have a democratic department um, and extend from there, right? So thank you all for being here. That concludes the October podcast of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Check out www.tinapippin.org our website for more information and resources. Thanks for listening.